This podcast was produced on Ghana Yerda. We respect First Nation people around Australia and acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains where the Festival Centre is located. We honour their spiritual relationship with their country and we do so in the spirit of reconciliation. I see performance works as providing a village, as surrounding individual babies and young children with beauty, with love, with interest, with eyes to see, with ears to hear, with curious and caring and skilled performers. The children take part in the world of the show. It's their embodied, creative movement or vocal response to the world that they find themselves in. It's Libby O'Donovan here. Welcome to the First 50 podcast, a 50th anniversary celebration of the Adelaide Festival Centre, the home of performing arts in South Australia. This magical venue, which I have had the delight of performing in over the last 25 years, has housed many historical moments and thousands of incredible artists. I came away from this upcoming discussion with a sense of childlike wonder in awe of the wisdom and insight that our guest shared. I'm joined by an artist, teacher and director, someone that has had a significant impact on the well-being and self-expression of groups often overlooked by society. This artist has enjoyed an incredible career that has spanned several continents and decades and has even led to a practice-led doctoral degree. Following a myriad of awards such as the Arts SA Ruby Award and a Sydney Meyer Performing Arts Award, this guest is the former artistic director of the Come Out Festival, now known as the Dream Big Children's Festival, the premier children's art festival in Australia. Prepare yourself for the compassion and wisdom of the distinguished Dr. Sally Chance of the Sally Chance Dance Company. Sally is a prolific theatre maker who currently specialises in engaging very young children in immersive works that celebrate inclusivity and accessibility. Join me in discovering how Sally found her success and how she enlightens and inspires through the arts. I'm utterly delighted to welcome to the First 50 podcast, the incredible Dr. Sally Chance. <laughs> Thank you, Libby. It's great to be here. Just don't ask for any medical advice, hey? I know. <laughs> I love that, Doctor. That's absolutely fabulous. Mm. I wanted to start with a quote that I found when I was watching the countless amazing VMOs of all of your work that you've done over the years and particularly the work you have done recently with your company. And you've said about this work. Working with very young children and their families is the most fascinating area of practice in the world. It's precious, it's important, it's got colossal implications for the well-being of that child, the trajectory of their life. I love Mm. that quote. I love that you say colossal and I wonder, is that true for you when you first started your career as an artist at the age of six pulling on the ballet costume (laughs) you've guessed it you've guessed it it's so true the early years I think there's far more awareness nowadays about the importance of the early years in terms of neurological research educational practice and most importantly to me and my colleagues in our rugged small independent company 
families, the parents, the people who are there day after day, 24-7. And I guess making sure we don't put pressure on parents too with this whole importance of the early years thing. It's just about being with each other, about presence, about play, about attending to our children and following their lead through their needs. And I believe they have cultural needs as much as obviously food and love and care and a roof over their heads. And so that's where that all fits in. And certainly in terms of my own life, I had an utterly secure and wonderful childhood. And yes, my mum encouraged me to take up lots. You know, I had a crack at horse riding because I was growing up in a rural part of South England, the beautiful county of Devon. And so we did all the rural stuff. And I didn't even like the first ballet class I had a go at. So mum took me to another (laughs) and just kept the options open and the doors open. And this second class I stayed with until, so I was, I think I was about six And I was still there at 18. I only stopped because I left home. So you found a love for it straight away Mm. for dance. Yes. I want to take you back to being a young child and being six. That ballet, not enjoying the first session but the second (laughs) session and from then on until you were 18, what kept you there? What kept you loving Mm. dance and being involved in the arts in that way? Such an interesting question because if you'd asked me at the time, I couldn't have told you. I utterly took it for granted. So casting myself back, I it was pure joy. It was in my body. It was challenging. For classical ballet, the right and the wrong of it, the rigour, I found dance improvisation and other dance forms, especially contemporary dance, much, much later when I went off and did my training in London. After a nice academic undergraduate degree to keep everybody happy, there was even then, maybe even more so then, the discourse about the arts not being a proper job or... My folks were really supportive, but, you know, were concerned. I could see it. Like, how do you make a living with this? I think we can all relate to that, can't we? And, you know, it honestly doesn't get easier, let's be honest. But yeah, as a child, of course, I was supported to go twice a week, religiously, uh, lots of performance. I mean, I did tap and all of that as well, which was fun. It was good to be on stage. People belonging, a community, self-expression, just I didn't realise how integral it was to my life until it stopped. I left home to go and work in a ski hotel in Germany. Right. And skiing was fun, but it wasn't dancing. And it was my first window without a weekly class. And I couldn't believe how bereft I was. Uh. So, you know, I took it up again as soon as I could. And that was when it steered me into other forms, other ways of entering the whole dance world, other ways of being in dance. So you studied a Bachelor of Arts specialising in German and French, I think. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And were you still dancing while you were studying full time? Yes, I was. Yeah. There was a very active student union with a whole lot of classes. And yeah, contemporary dance class for students that, again, I went to religiously. It was the backbone of my life. Kept me sane, kept me alive, kept me fit, kept me expressing. And then you did a diploma in community dance. That's right. Yeah. And what's community dance? That yes. sounds fascinating. It is. It is. So nowadays we would call it socially engaged dance practice or inclusive dance practice. But in the 1980s in the UK, it was a growth area. It really was. And the study that I took part in at the institution that's called Trinity Laban in London 
was a program of study that explicitly responded to demand from the multiple local authorities throughout the UK. And so this job needed people to be trained to do it. It was somewhat administrative, but it was about generating activity, galvanizing dance action. It's almost a bit like animating a community. But in real practice, it was about creating a focus through movement and dance and gathering people around it, whether that was their cultural background or their interest in a certain dance form, or, and this was the bit that interested me especially, their identity, their experience of life, their circumstances. And so for me that played out most especially in terms of beginning to work with people with disability. But, you know, back in the day, we're talking institutional residential circumstances. I remember a young woman in the small community where I went for my first job at Ludus Dance in the northwest of England, came to one of the groups there, and her local community didn't know she existed. The family kept her quiet. And the equal and opposite of that was the political environment at the time, which was the Margaret Thatcher era, was closing down the institutions mm. in a spirit of moving people back into the community, which sounds great, you know, and full support to that. And of course, the way that's played out over the decades can only be positive. But I witnessed people worrying about that because what was their community? What did that mean for them? So again, their weekly dance structured their lives, was the backbone of their lives, just as it had been for me. Yes. Was a space to, to speak without words, to be seen, to be met, to be heard, all of the things that we've already talked about in relation to my current practice with young children. Yes. And that seems to have informed your career yeah. since then in such a big way. You mentioned Ludus Dance, so you joined the Ludus Dance company. Yes, I did, yeah. And one of the performances that you were a part of actually came here to Adelaide to perform at the Come Out Festival, as it was known yes. then. Yes. What were your impressions of coming to the Festival Centre here in Adelaide and oh. performing <laughs> on these stages here? Oh, look, I actually was not one of the performers. So Ludus Dance was absolutely legendary and still is in the UK. It's a dance in education company. And the artistic director at the time was again an Australian legend in young people's theatre called Michael Fitzgerald. And again, he he I think of him as a figure that really this flowering, this opening up of theatre for young people here in Australia. He brought people from overseas to Adelaide for his festivals and he travelled the world to bring companies like Ludus to our festival. You know, the Come Out Festival, Now Dream Big, the children's version of the Adelaide Festival of the Arts. And just as important, of course. And he was visionary. He brought the works from the com our company. Yes. Um, and I was one of the company's two community dance practitioners. And Michael noticed our work and had us go places in the metropolitan area. We, we went to places where people with disability were living, where children with special needs were attending school. So guess what? His focus for us was the whole disability cultural world through schools, through institutions, through residential places. And that was our program. It was just so wonderful. I mean, it was so wonderful that I literally stayed. I was going to ask <laughs> you, because that was 1989. Yes. 
And then you stayed from then. Well, I had to go back. And in my mind was to develop essentially Michael's vision of disability cultural practice because everywhere we went during Come Out 89, the participants and the people who'd booked us said, can you come back? So I felt that there was a value of the work. So yes, I, I literally came back to do that work. And it was certainly not in any kind of cultural void. I mean, I cannot believe my luck. By the time I came back a year later, a bunch of organisations, including our own No Strings Attached Theatre of Disability, Twitty Arts was in its really, really early days. There was an organisation called Arts in Action Now, Access Arts, having a conference that I managed to attend within a week of arriving, you know, and I sensed a kind of, well, a cultural movement. And through my work that eventually became Restless Dance, which began as a project of Karklu Youth Arts. Oh, it really speaks to the power of collaboration, of partnership, of risk-taking, of just giving things a whirl and seeing what happens. And the rest is history. After founding Restless Dance Theatre in 1991, the company went on to become Australia's leading creator of dance theatre by dancers with and without disability. So access, equity, inclusion was how it all began. But it quickly became much more nuanced and exciting than that. that I found that exciting. But it became so, OK, so when are you going to do a show? Yes. And I thought, okay, right, okay, good, I uh, don't know. But I quickly realised that that was a necessary thing, you know, the, the kind of public, putting your money where your mouth is, you know, being out there, selling tickets. Within only a few years, the Restless Dance Theatre had performed at several major arts festivals across Australia, such as the Adelaide Fringe Festival and the Sydney Paralympic Arts Festival. It would also see Sally return to the Come Out Festival. So Come Out 93 was the platform for a major work by Restless, the first big high-profile work. It was called Icons. It was a challenge and it was so exciting and it worked and it blew people's minds. A significant part of Sally's legacy is the virtue of creating a space where high-quality arts are made by diverse creatives and designed to both empower and advocate. One of the dancers always used to say, I've got my power. And we found that so um, empowering to each other. And I don't think any of us was quite ready for the power and impact of this work. Even after handing over the reins in 2001, Sally remains very fond of Restless Dance Theatre and the fantastic work it produces. The story of Restless Dance Theatre is an inspiring one that's worth the deep dive but it's just one chapter in Sally's extraordinary career. And then in 2003, you became the artistic director of the Come Out Festival, mm. now known as the Dream Big Festival. I did. What was that like? <laughs> that must have been a huge responsibility, a big shift, very exciting, I imagine. But what were your dreams for that festival? Oh, I have such respect for the festival. It's the jewel in the crown of Australian young people in the arts practice. There are, there are now only two precious 
Theatre for Young Audiences festivals in Australia. Wow. You know, I'm not sure there's an actual erosion going on, but, you know, in all honesty, it's not been easy for young people in the arts for the last 10 years. The festival, to me, was about, again, creating some kind of focus, in the case of that event, a thematic focus to engage and interest educators and parents and to gather people around it, to showcase local youth theatre companies. So young people still at school, making theatre, being artists themselves, to bring works to South Australia because it was resolutely statewide a festival and still is. And obviously it's multi-art form to have events, to have young people stage their own events, to have the iconic opening event, Mm. to make sure that visual arts, film, media, screen-based events, the literature program, all right, all of that showcased through a spirit. We summed it up as viewing and doing so that children and young people could attend, witness the work of professional artists, witness the artistic work of young peers and take part themselves, whether that was back at school or preparing something to be showcased during the festival or there and then Mm. in a foyer activity. We're here in the John Bishop Room. My favourite event was the 07 event. The JB Room was our green room and all our volunteers came here, made themselves a tea and coffee. The festival staff would come here and touch base. It was quiet. It was lovely. It was like our precious corner of the festival centre. The entire event was here as a hub. Obviously, lots and lots in schools and other venues like the Odeon and the Queen's and all over the state. But this was our hub. I know that you then were the artistic director twice more in 2005 and 2007 for the Come Out Festival and then over those three festivals, hundreds of thousands of children were attending, involved as artists, as participants, as people who came as audience members and their families. It engaged a massive amount of people in South Australia. It did. All across the state, as you mentioned. How did that feel to be the artistic director of something so important? Oh, look, a privilege. It's one of those roles where you have to come into it in a spirit of service, of, of serving the children and young people of South Australia via their adults. And the adults in the lives of young people are likely to be the people who buy the tickets and provide the transport and do all those logistical organisational things. And so an absolute shout out to my colleague Tanya Vandriel, who was the general manager of the festivals and a series of wonderful, hardworking teams. Tanya took that whole uh, relationship with teachers and schools as institutions and parents and carers and the family as an institution incredibly seriously and evolved what I think are still known as arts ambassadors. And we looked after our arts ambassadors to the nth degree with special uh, events and, and um, a flood of information in recognition that these are the hardworking advocates within their school sites primarily and probably within their the units of their families too. They are the advocates for artistic practice for children and young people. But I think it was the, the, the sheer numbers arose from the age range, our commitment via Tanya to educators, to those people back in their schools doing the deed, you know, not, not only doing the booking, but sustaining the, mm. the work of the festival, probably for the whole term of the event. 
on their sites. It was huge. We committed also to the regions. We had good sponsorships. We had our opening event at Cummins Area School, I remember, for the 07 event, as opposed to Elder Park, which was radical at the time. But it was in the spirit of, look, we are fortunate to be here in the city, but there are people all over the state that need different versions of what it is we're doing here. So it was an event called Playground where... People were invited to either design their playground in school or use one locally. And what we loved about it was that it could incorporate very young children, parents with their prams, through to entire school communities, such as the area school there at Cummins. I recommend Dream Big. If you have any children or young people in your life, get yourselves to Dream Big 2023. Since its inception in 1974, the Dream Big Children's Festival has been the leading arts event for children in Australia. With fun, play and learning built in at every turn, it's an event where imagination runs wild and the youngest members of our society have a chance to express themselves and be heard. With past programs including everything from Indonesian shadow puppetry to rock musical pyrotechnic bonanzas to special readings from author Roald Dahl himself, the Dream Big Children's Festival has long been an experience that is formative for so many children. Although she no longer runs the festival, Sally's interest in early childhood development and cultural practice has extended to her current venture, Sally Chance Dance. And with every performance, Sally is deepening our understanding of how the arts can help our children grow and thrive. I want to talk about your continued passion with the arts for young children. Yes. But you specifically make work with and for children. And there's something about dance that really suits children, I think, because it is about play and it is about expressing things not with words but with your body, which embodies, I guess, what children can express if they don't have words. They do have their bodies to move, to respond, and that's something that you can then carry on for the rest of your life as a dancer. Absolutely. As a human being, in all honesty. So yes, so many people say to me, oh, I'd love to come to your sessions. My my two-year-old, my three-year-old loves dancing. And in my mind, I'm saying, well, I'm here to tell you all two and three-year-olds and babies, very young babies, love to move. And I guess that begs all sorts of interesting questions. What do we mean by dance? What is the difference between movement and dance? And I think of dance as making meaning. And so that's especially relevant for pre-verbal children. There's a wonderful uh, educator, Loris Malaguzzi. He's the person behind the renowned Reggio Emilia approach to early years education in Northern Italy. And he talks about the hundred languages of children and dance and all the art forms, as well as Play-Doh, as well as twirling autumn leaves are the languages of children because it's how children make meaning how they communicate, how they're telling the world who they are. And we just need to have eyes to see and ears to hear what they're saying and telling us. It's such a beautiful thing to witness and be a part of Mm. and to take seriously as you do as a serious form of expression, 
artistic pursuit of communication, of us being able to listen to that and to respond to that and have that included in arts practice or in life, really. That's right. And there was a great quote where you mentioned that part of what happens when children come into these spaces that you create for them and with them is that they are seen. Yes, that's right. Yes, they quickly get the idea about that. It's about creating that aesthetic environment that, in a sense, they notice being noticed. And that's that little stage that we have to go through. And that's when it all starts to happen. And in terms of their who they are and their lives, this is actually critical. I mean, it's, it's a developmental stage that all children have to go through. I feel very serious and quite moved when I think about this. So the one of my heroes is Donald Winnicott, who was a, an English paediatric psychologist. He was working in the 1950s in the UK. I mean, imagine English society in that era. But he was so ahead of his time. And he was the guy that said there's no such thing as a baby, by which he meant a baby is always, for all practical emotional and psychosocial purposes, in the company of their adults, dependent on their adults. Hence, the messages they're getting from their adults being incredibly important. But at some point, and this is another Winnicott phrase, young babies have to decide to go on being. It gives me chills. And it's such an important decision. And a child can't go on being, and what he means by that, into the fullness of who they are, who they are now and who they might be as they go through life, without first feeling seen by their important adults. It's huge. (laughs) Incredibly important. Yes, it absolutely is. You're so right. And it's such a beautiful way to look at it because having the importance and the gravitas of that responsibility as an adult is Mm. essential to Mm. our well-being, but particularly for children who won't have a memory of that, but it is incredibly important that they are part of this arts practice from even before their living memory, really. And you've started your own company now called Sally Chance Dance, which is fabulous. (laughs) It's handy how it rhymes, isn't it? It's handy how it rhymes. (laughs) It's great. And one of your quotes that I love that I think really captures your passion for creating work for very young babies, you say, at the end of the day, you are creating with them, not for them. Yes. It's such a fascinating area. You know, again, not unlike being obliged for many years to advocate for the very existence of disability cultural practice. I mean, it's unthinkable now, isn't it? All the incredible work that's happening and disability-led, you know, of course, all these decades later. The discourse was really rather similar back in the day with the early years. Like, why would you bother? Why should we fund this when they won't remember it? And I found that, you know, an impoverished view, if I'm honest. Mm. And because it's a very literal view. Uh, Memory is an incredible thing. Memory develops in two stages. You have your implicit memory when you're a very young child. And then it shifts at a certain age to explicit memory. And you're quite right. The explicit memory tends to kick in at the top end of my age range at around the age of three, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later. But the implicit memory is incredibly important. So what the theorists mean by implicit is literally that the things you remember without remembering the details, but nonetheless your body remembers. Your body and soul remember. It's really that simple. So ideas about you can do anything in front of a baby uh, because they won't know what it is or they won't remember isn't true. And so I see 
performance works as, as fitting into that, as providing a village, as surrounding individual babies and young children with beauty, with love, with interest, with eyes to see, with ears to hear, with curious and caring and skilled performers in the company of the child's adults, of course, for their own security, and in many ways supporting that adult to, to witness the possibilities. It's, it's interesting how often we hear parents say, I never would have thought my child would have concentrated for that long, or I never would have thought my baby would be so brave, because we often see young babies come right out into the performance space to to join in, to make available their initiatives, their creative ideas on the floor. It's so beautiful. I, I get sort of giggly and, and kind of excited about it whenever I talk about it because it is so amazing. The children take part in the world of the show. It's not just any old thing. It's their embodied creative movement or vocal response to the world that they find themselves in. And that will settle somewhere in their implicit memory as a feeling, as the tone of the experience. Yes. And that's what it's all about. You are with me. It is easy to see that young people are aware of the wider world we live in, all of its challenges, changes, beauty and wonder. It is so important that we give children the chance to respond to this world and artists like Sally are the perfect guides to do this. What I'm keen to ask Sally how we can continue to use art, dance, song and play to build these pathways through childhood. You are with me. The Festival Centre here, the Adelaide Festival Centre, is 50 years old this year. What role do you see it playing over the next 50 oh, years? Oh, goodness me. Well, it was designed to sustain the festival vibe for the whole year, wasn't it? And I think it's that that incredible provision to the people of South Australia to experience the arts in a big way, in a small way, in a big night out where it's all about the big show, beautiful meal, putting your best clothes on, or the opposite, quiet work in progress showing in a studio somewhere deep in the less public areas of the building, which is exciting, which is behind the scenes, which is witnessing artistic process, mm. which is cultural provision for all of the people of South Australia, whether they are a, a newborn or attending for their own 50th year of life and beyond, carrying right along, really, the festivals, the niche events. Asia is one of my favourites, making sure that, that there's cultural diversity, all sorts of diversity in terms of identity and cultural practice itself. Beautiful. For a child and their family who have never come to the Adelaide Festival Centre, who have never experienced what it's like to be in a theatre or mm. seeing a work or being part of the arts in a broader sense, what would you say to them? Like, where's a good place to start for someone who's never been to the theatre? Mm. I think it's important to just emphasise how friendly and open 
this institution is as a building, as a culture, as a place to gather. I would recommend any of our festivals. This is the Festival Centre. The festivals are a wonderful place to start, obviously, especially Dream Big because of its complete commitment to highly specified and then therefore very user-friendly age groups. But all of the festivals have beautiful outdoor events, places where you can just come and have a little look and check it out and, and see how it feels, often outdoors. in a So that's a very child and friendly way to approach things. The beautiful thing about my experience of working in the early years is that I have noticed a lot of parents, carers and guardians coming along that aren't necessarily particularly experienced theatre attendees themselves, but they want experiences for their children. They're looking for stuff. I mean, at a, at a completely practical level, you've got to find stuff to do with your young child, haven't <laughs> yes. you? And so everybody at the Festival Centre works so hard to support that, to, to make that happen for people. I get why something unknown or something that maybe comes with a bit of a, an image might feel a bit scary or even totally inaccessible, but but it's so not. It's it's a case of, you, you can't go wrong. It, it's a case of coming along and, and giving it a try. And yeah, I reckon our festivals really hit the spot with that. At what age would you say people should start coming to the theatre? <laughs> well, you know what I'm going to say. It's, it's <laughs> almost not possible to be too young. But for all practical purposes, I would say four months and upwards. And I say that because I've recently come across a beautiful phrase and it's the fourth trimester. It's the idea that a newborn baby in their first three months and their mother, especially if it's the mother's first time, and the entire family group around them is grappling with this exquisite little newborn, all of the joys and challenges that that brings and, uh, you know, let's face it, the sheer exhaustion and the logistics and the emotional highs and lows. I love that phrase, the fourth trimester. It's a precious time. It's designed to be quite an internal time. But you know what? At four months, come on out to the theatre <laughs> and enjoy. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember taking my daughter to see I think it was Bernadette Peters here at the Festival Centre at six days old. Oh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit of belting. Um, <laughs> Why not? I think, it I think that was an implicit memory that's still there now at 13 and a half for sure. But what role does the arts play in the overall development of children and teenagers? Look, it's so important because the arts meet and draw out the whole child. I don't understand an emphasis on what we term academic pursuits at the expense of others. They most effectively integrate. There isn't an artist I know who isn't also rigorous, intellectual, intelligent, curious, questing, uh, self-motivated, holistic, humble in their eternal, in our eternal desire for new knowledge. There are ideas about different types of knowledge. Knowledge isn't just in the brain. The, we all know now the brain and the body are utterly and intimately connected. Our bodies know, our brains know, and they know together. There are other forms of knowledge, First Nations knowledge, embodied knowledge, non-verbal knowledge, the knowledges that can be gathered and expressed through material expression, through handling materials to make art, 
how art can extend to design, to engineering, how moving in the space can become community and empathy and mutual care. But the idea that they are separate, I feel it's about time we moved beyond that, with all the decades of research that backs that up, mm -hmm. to a more holistic approach to not only young people, but actually to our society. And we are interdependent and interconnected, and the arts are the quickest way to learn how to do that and to make visible that that is happening. It's wonderful to hear your passionate and compassionate views on that subject. And I totally agree. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if that was something that could be held up as important as it is? Mm, mm. What can we learn from children? What can we learn mm. from them? You must see them all the time mm. when you create works and they are part of the works that are created. They create works with you. Mm. What do you see adults learning from their experiences, watching these children, being with the children? What can the children teach us mm. as adults? Mm. Oh, such a great question. In an aspect of my work is that I work quite formally, very invisibly, in perinatal infant mental health. And that's that whole amazing world of parents with their children three years and younger and supporting the, again, the interdependence of that relationship. And it is that mutuality, that dialogue that I think as parents, we have to get our heads around that we have to work out in the first place that we are learning from our children, that our children, our children teach us how to parent them rather than us giving ourselves a hard time by even expecting that we have all the answers. And the sooner we learn that, the better. I mean, it took me years. You know, seeing the world through the eyes of a child is a beautiful thing to do, almost as a daily practice. You know, it almost reminds me of, you know, those things that are, you know, like gratitude or, or mindfulness or, or humility. The, the seeing of things afresh, the, the appreciation for the sensory world around us all the time. And so that's something that we can witness in children's responses to their worlds and in a heightened way through their artistic experiences. I think, you know, in many ways, the goal of my work is that it's, it is normal life, it is real life, but, but heightened by the kind of theatrical things that we can bring. That might be live music or, or lighting or a, a certain world through objects. And if the adults can enter that space through the eyes of their child, they see the wonder, but then they can step back and see their child's sheer capacity within that world, their skill, their ability to read what's happening, to perceive the intentions of the work through the adult performers, to feel, to feel that feeling tone, to be open to that, to be interested in absolutely everything. And there's a, there's a beauty to that. There's awe, there's wonder, of course, and there's learning. <laughs> Anything can happen. I love that. Thank you, Sally Chance. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you and thank you for sharing everything that you do. My pleasure. The fourth trimester, implicit memory, the hundred languages of children, my time with Sally has made it clearer than ever how important it is for children to engage in the arts. 
We can often forget what it's like to be a child in this world. So whether you have a child or you're a child at heart, I hope Sally's expertise encourages you to reconnect with this childlike view of life. Sally has proven to be an incredible artist in her own right, but her vivacity in the process of teaching and directing others, facilitating exploration in others, is infectious and impactful. It is no accident that she settled in Adelaide, where the Festival Centre has provided her with a perfect platform and festival to develop her work. We look forward to seeing Sally's vision come to life with her production the Thing That Matters during next month's Dream Big Children's Festival. And we hope to see you there too. The impact of combining brilliant people with a dedicated space like the Adelaide Festival Centre is colossal. And it's here for you to experience with your loved ones, no matter how young they are. If you enjoyed this audio experience, rate the podcast and share it with your friends and family so we can all enjoy the rich cultural experiences South Australia has to offer. In the meantime, if you need an entertainment fix, why not see a show? You can find out what fantastic performances are currently showing on the Adelaide Festival Centre website and social media. Search Adelaide Festival Centre or follow the links in the episode description. I'm Libby O'Donovan and you're listening to The First 50 Podcast, produced by Solstice Podcasting.